Matthew chapter 5, we are in the midst of this series of messages on the Sermon on the Mount. I was talking to our preschool director, Janetta Holmes, today, and today they have been doing preschool worship and Bible study and Sunday school all at 9 o'clock by Zoom since this all started, and today they did the Sermon on the Mount, the entire Sermon on the Mount, and they did it in 30 minutes. I said, well, my goal was to do it in eight weeks, and we are five weeks in, and we're not even to the middle part of chapter five. And so that's not going to happen. We've been walking through it just because every word seems to have such weight. In fact, we're going to talk about some words today that might not at first seem to have weight in the passage that we're going to look at, but they do. And we've looked in chapter 5, 1 through verse 16 about what Jesus says about the inner life of who we are, about the blesseds in there, the Beatitudes. And last week we moved to say that because of who we are, the character that is built in us because of our relationship with God, that we are to be the salt and the light. And we talked about what salt was and light and how that impacts how we live. And the natural question that would have flowed out of the discussion of inner character, being salt and light, the natural question that would have flowed out of that is, okay, so what does that mean? How does that look? What does it mean to be salt and light? And is that traditionally what we've done? Is that like what the Pharisees are teaching us? And it's about the law and that we follow the law and we follow the law completely. Is it what some radicals out there are saying is like the law isn't important at all? And they were trying throughout Jesus' ministry to pin him down. And in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20, which is what we'll cover today. And these verses and the examples that he gives following these verses throughout the rest of the chapter, we get Jesus's answer about the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, as we understand it, how we should view it, how he viewed it, what that meant. It's an important to the understanding of the dynamic between Jesus and the religious establishment to see what he says here because Jesus had come announcing the arrival of the kingdom of God. And he had come talking about this new kingdom and that the kingdom was on the way and that the kingdom was here and that he was issuing, he was ushering in, inaugurating the kingdom of God. And I don't know whether you know this or not, but people don't like change. Do y'all know that? People don't like change. I learned that in, in college um, when they were talking about pastoring churches. I learned that in seminary uh, when they talked about pastoring churches. And then I went to the first church and I made a change. And I learned that really quickly in the church, right? People don't like change, especially about things that are important to them. And so when Jesus comes and he talks about a new kingdom, the religious establishment is like, what do you mean a new kingdom? We think we've got it figured out. We're okay. We're, 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 we're good. Like we, we, we have the law. God revealed the law to us. We're trying to live the law best we can. We've even written like hundreds of other rules about how to live the law. We're good. And Jesus started to talk about new things. And they're like, well, wait, wait a minute. What, what do you mean? And then he began to implicitly and explicitly criticize the religious establishment. And tension began to rise and opposition began to grow. And at the center of the tension for the religious establishment was, does Jesus not believe what we believe? Is he not orthodox in his commitment to the Old Testament? Does he not believe the law and the prophets? 
And so Jesus, as he launches into his first major teaching, we talked about the Beatitudes as almost like a preamble that he starts to get into the meat about salt and light last week. And as he launches into the rest of this sermon, he wants to make very clear what his views are on the Old Testament and specifically what it means to live a life that gives glory and honor to God as part of the new kingdom of heaven. They would have expected him to say, well, I believe in this rabbi's view or that rabbi's view or this understanding, but he doesn't do any of that. He supersedes it all and talks about how the law points to him. One author says this about what we're about to read, that these four verses, 70 through 20, provide the key to interpreting the entire Sermon on the Mount. But in many ways, it provides the key to understanding Jesus' inauguration of the kingdom and what Matthew is trying to tell us about what Jesus did for the entire gospel. So what is that? First of all, we see that Jesus validates the Old Testament. Look at verse 17 and 18. It says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, the first thing to notice about this is that he starts in the Greek, in the original, and here in our English with a don't think. That's a word that in the original language means, don't let it be said, or you may have heard, but let me verify. I don't know if you know this or not either. We talked about people don't like change. Sometimes things get said about you or other people that aren't exactly true. Like fake news didn't start four years ago. Right? And news had gotten out that Jesus may not believe in the Old Testament. And this idea that he had set aside God's former revelation. And he wants to make clear from the very beginning. Don't think. Don't even put it in your mind. Don't imagine for a minute that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. The word that I came there is a specific phrase that is used on his time period, almost like don't think that I came into the world or that I came from God. It was a missional phrase, meaning don't think that my reason for coming to this earth is to do this. Don't think that my intention, that my point of mission is this. So that's not why I'm here. I'm not here to abolish. The word means to tear apart or to completely destroy, to remove any semblance of. He said, my goal here is not to take away the Old Testament, if you will, for our understanding. When he said it, he said the law and the prophets. The law, Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The prophets, I won't name all of those, all right? Major and minor. There are a lot of them. And that was to them, when he said the law and the prophets, what they would have understood is the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, what we would put there. They included in prophets even some of the historical writings and other things because prophets were a part of that. So Jesus, from the very beginning, says, that's not my job. My goal is not to take it away. And then he tells them, even in the next verse, that, in fact, it's never going away. If you look at verse 18, he says, for truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest Letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. What its point is, is that the Old Testament is valid and will be valid, that the revelation of God, of who he is and what he desires, is valid and will be from ongoing. 
phrase here is like the phrase that it happened at one time and the effects of it are ongoing until the end of the age. It's there. There's an interesting little wordplay here when he talks about one stroke of a letter. The smallest um, the smallest letter in the Hebrew language was a yod. And there were all these times that it would get left out by accident, like a dot or a little note here. And he's saying that even the smallest detail will not pass away. He validates the fact that the law and the prophets are still valuable and true. One Jewish rabbi who read this of Jesus says, In all of the Jewish rabbinic literature I know of, no more unequivocal, fiery acknowledgement of Israel's scripture in the Old Testament than what Jesus gives at the opening of the Sermon on the Mount. So he comes out of the gate strong, okay? He comes out of the gate strong and he says to those people that would say, hey, he's trying to discard the law. He's trying to do away with the law. Have you seen what his disciples do? They're trying to get away from the law. He says, in no way would I ever come to do that. That is not my goal. My goal, and then he tells us the second thing is, is to fulfill the law. Jesus fulfills the Old Testament. Now, this is where... I can almost imagine like a Pharisee sitting in the midst of the crowd and he says, I did not come in any way to abolish the law. And they're like, amen. Mm-hmm. Keep going. He said, I've come to fulfill it. And they're like, oh, oh what? You, you can't fulfill the law. The law is only from God. And Jesus says, I've come to fulfill it. Now, what does that word mean? What does fulfill mean here? Well, throughout history, it's been interpreted in one of three ways or a combination of that. I think it's a combination of it all. He says that he would, some say that it means that he would live perfectly the law out. That for the first time in history, the law that was given by God in the Pentateuch would be lived out completely by him. The messages given by the prophets would be lived out perfectly by him. The second understanding is that by fulfill, he means that he would bring about the full meaning of what the law, the Old Testament meant. And the third is that he would bring scripture to its ultimate fulfillment. And there's definitely parts of all three of these. But I think the best understanding of this and what he means by fulfill the law actually comes later in the writings of Paul. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 19 through 25, Paul says that the law was given to us for certain reasons. And what he says there is that the law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. And the weight of that verse means that the purpose of the law was in some way to instruct us and guide us and help us until we got to the point of Jesus being able to show us and to die for us and to give us a way of salvation. So what does it mean that he fulfilled the law? What does it mean that it's a guardian for us? Well, here's what I think is implied by Jesus. It is implied by Paul, and I think is the underlying the foundation of all of that is that in the law we begin to see the character of God the God who created us we understand he is holy we understand that he is a jealous God that we can't worship other gods we can't have other gods before us we understand that he's set apart he's different he's completely different than anything we know he's not like um, back then they thought there were other gods uh, that are other people claim to have other gods and he is saying I am the one and only God there is nothing like me there is no one like me 
And the law sets the standard by which it is understood that you have to follow in order to have fellowship with God. Now listen, I could stand here today and just read through the entire book of Leviticus to give you a choice of understanding what that is. I decided not to do that. And all of God's people said, Amen, alright? Several of you have never amen before, amen that, so I appreciate that. But it shows us all of this stuff. And you begin to go through the book of Leviticus and you see all that is there when you understand in Deuteronomy, when you read about the character of God and who he is. Another thing that the law showed us is that we are completely incapable of carrying it out. You can't do it. Impossible. It's just not something that, like, could ever happen in your life. I remember when I was when I was growing up, I was a decent baseball player. I wasn't a great baseball player. I never played high school ball, but I made all-star teams as a kid. And I could, I could hit. That was my thing. I could hit. And I remember one time when I was about 13 or 14, I thought I was really good. And I went to a batting cage, and a guy said, uh, he just kind of said, do you think you could hit major league pitching? I was like, yeah. Because I was 13. And so if somebody asks you a question like that, what do you say? Yeah, well, of course I can. If I, if, I, if I swing and miss, I'm just not trying that hard, right? And he said, okay, but I'm going to put it up to the pitching machine, up to major league speed. I didn't get close, right? Like the first one came, and I was, went, Poof. I was like, all right, all right, I was just watching. I was just observing, just making sure everything's okay. I didn't get close. It was impossible for me. There are some people that think that they can do enough good, they can have enough stuff in their hand, they can build enough in their column of goodness to override their not good. What the law teaches us is, and it reminds us, and he'll say this, if you break one part of the law, you've broken the whole thing. So when it says that it was our guardian, the point was that it was to show us the character of God, who he is, a loving, jealous, holy God, to show us the standard by which we had to live and to realize that we could never live that standard and we had to have someone come and rescue us. And when Jesus comes, he does all three of those things. He lives the law completely. He shows us what it is that the law intended. And then he died for our sins to give us a way to be saved from our sins. So Jesus says, listen, I'm not here to, I'm not here to destroy the law. I'm here to fulfill it. And then the third thing he says, which is interesting, he says that the Law, the Old Testament, should be taught and obeyed. Now he says that here in chapter 5, verse 19. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do so will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whatever does then teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And the point he's making here is it's still valuable. It still shows us the character of God. It still shows us the standard of holiness. It still gives us an understanding of what we ought to be doing. And that by understanding the nature and the principle of the law of the Old Testament, we can live our lives for the glory of God better. And this is where it gets a little murky sometimes for people because they say, you you mean the whole Old Testament law? Because there's a lot of stuff in the Old Testament law that most of us in this room do not abide by anymore. It was 4th of July yesterday. 
Anybody here eat some pork? Anybody? Let me see your hands. Hot dogs? Anybody eat hot dogs? Who knows if pork's in hot dogs, but we assume it is. Listen, I grilled out a Boston butt and bologna. Praise be to God Almighty, right? Amen in the house of the Lord. That ain't good according to the Old Testament law. That's not on the good list. A couple of weeks ago, I grilled some steak and shrimp. Shrimp? Not on the Old Testament law. How many of you here today are wearing anything on your body that has more than one fiber as a part of it? Against the Old Testament law. And so people come and they say things like this when you bring up a moral statute from the Old Testament law. Because we still believe some of the things taught in the Old Testament law say we will defend it, use it as a discussion of reasons against certain things. And they'll say, then why don't you do the whole thing? Why are you wearing mixed fabrics? Why are you eating shrimp? Why are you eating bacon? I heard some gas, but that's all right. All right. And so there has to be an understanding of what's there and what is meant by here. What Jesus means here is the essence of the law and the goodness of the law for us to understand the principle behind it. And to do that, just real quick, I'll give you an understanding of the three kinds of laws in the law and prophets. Civil, ceremonial, and moral. The first thing we have to understand is that part of the law is given to a brand new nation starting from scratch that was being led by Moses but was set up to be a theocracy governed by God. As America, we are not a theocracy, right? Right? We're a democracy. Actually, we're a constitutional republic with democratic principles, okay? And that what set that out for us was the Starting with the Declaration of Independence and then the Constitution and we have that living document has morphed over time and may still morph in the future. But that's our foundational document. Well, for the nation of Israel, a theocracy, the foundational document for how they would be governed at a nation was not a separate constitution. It was the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And so there are laws in there that pertain to a nation, a political nation, that were the people of God under theocratic rule. Let me also say this to you about the United States of America. It is not the new Israel. The new Israel isn't the new Israel. The new Israel, the biblical Israel in today's time is the people of God called the church, big C church, that are his church worldwide that are gathered or ungathered. We are the people of God. And so there are certain things that are for political reasons written into the law that aren't applicable to us as people living in a different political system. Do you understand? Got that? Second one is ceremonial. Here's the problem they had. They had sin. They had to figure out how to get rid of sin. They had to figure out how to stay clean. Part of the eating habits, part of the wearing garment habits, part of the hand washing habits, part of the things listed there were ceremonially to keep clean and to be a part of what was going on in the sacrificial system. When Jesus died, do you remember the event that happened when Jesus died in the temple? What happened? Curtain from top to bottom ripped, right? Which showed access to the king, to the throne, was given to us. And the ceremonial system was no longer needed to have our sins wiped away. 
That's why you and I don't have a lamb on this altar being butchered every week. Okay? Our sacrifice has been paid. The food laws had to do with ceremonial cleanliness. The food laws also had to do with safety and health. Had to do with holiness of his people. And the final category is moral. Primarily encapsulated best in a group of ten moral commands that we call the ten commandments. And that's why issues like how long my beard is or mixed fibers and bacon is not on the same level as don't covet, don't murder, don't lie. Because those are the moral foundations and they go to the character of God and to his people. The principles behind those civic and ceremonial laws are similar to what is in the moral law, though. Take care of one another. Think about your responsibilities more than your rights. Look out for each other. And so Jesus taught the law is valid. I have fulfilled it and it's important to teach and obey. And here's the last thing and then we're done. But he taught this as well. The law is not adequate for salvation. Look at what he says. This is right there straight out of it, the next verse. For I tell you, unless your righteousness, your good works, your following the law, surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Now, just so you know, I know when we get, I know when we hear scribes and Pharisees, we've been trained, those of us that grew up in the church, to think of them as the bad guys. They were the ones that confronted Jesus. But to them, this was their spiritual leaders, the keepers of the law. Not only the ones that told you what the law said, but the ones that kept it better than anyone else. These were, if you said, who is the closest to perfection you can find, they would have said the scribes and Pharisees. And Jesus says, unless you can be better than them, you'll never get into the kingdom. Unless you can be better than the best You're not getting into the kingdom. Now here's what's interesting about that. He's going to, and we'll talk about these next week. He's then going to take about five specific examples from scripture and say, for instance, you've heard don't murder. Well, I'm going to tell you it's, it's harder than that. You shouldn't even have hate in your heart. You've heard it said don't commit adultery. Well, it's, it's, it's stronger than that. Your righteousness needs to be that you can't even have lust in your heart. And so what he does is he takes the standard that nobody could live up with and he makes it harder. And the point in all of that is none of us are able on our own to be saved. This week, you know, this summer, spring, I don't even know what season it is, what day it is. Right? Yesterday it didn't feel like the 4th of July. And part of that is because over the last several years, our summers have been kind of guided by certain things. VBS, it starts tomorrow. We, I've never done VBS this week of the year. It's always first week of June. We always do it first week of June. My life is calendars around it. It's going to feel like summer starting this week because I'll have VBS, right? Just the way it is. By this time in the summer, we've had trips to generate. Um, Center Kid was supposed to be leaving thing next week. We've had uh, trips to Brazil, trips to Denver. All of those are supposed to happen. And over the last few days, one of the things when that happens is when you get on Facebook and it reminds you of memories, it brings up some of those occasions. And over the last week, one of the things that's really been kind of prevalent in my mind is Brazil. I haven't been to Brazil in about seven years, which seems just hard for me to believe. 
And I love Brazil. Our church has been to Brazil almost every year. We didn't go um, World Cup year, and this is the other year that, since I got here. So Brazil's been on my heart. Another reason Brazil's been on my heart is because one of the guys that went with us every year, every year, a guy named Lamar Hunt, passed away this week unexpectedly. And Lamar did the glasses. That's what he did. He took that over. I remember the first time Lamar went. Lamar was always very encouraging to me. And so Brazil's been on my mind again and again and again. And being with those people and preaching through an interpreter and being able to stand there and see. I mean, there are just experiences that it's just hard to describe if you've never been. Um, you know, to, to speak in front of a group of, of people. And we, we all know what invitations look like in America. And I say on most Sundays before COVID-19, anybody wants to come be saved, come on down or tell us now we're doing online, tell us online or let us know. And we'll have, you know, everyone's all have a response or it doesn't matter what church you're in. You have a couple of people, man, to stand in Brazil. And I remember Lamar one time off to the side, he was sitting kind of the front row and, uh, Lamar wasn't what you would call an emotional guy. Like he didn't, like he wasn't like a rah-rah cheerleader guy. He was just kind of reserved, usually. And I preached, got Gil. Some of you know Gil. Gil interpreted for me. And uh, I gave the invitation very straightforward. I preached on John 3.16. I basically told him what John 3.16 said. So the only way you can be saved is Jesus. And then I talked about one verse. The verse that we say is, There is no name under heaven by which men may be saved except for Jesus. No other name. And I said, and if you want to accept Jesus, you need to come. Gil said that, and I said, you need to come right now. And you're used to, as a preacher, when you say that, everybody just, "Mm mm-hmm, good. And I remember, like, they just started coming. And I looked over at Lamar, and Lamar just went, "Mm." That was it. That's what he gave me. And I thought about that verse a lot this week. Only Jesus saves only Jesus saves when I think about the mess we find ourselves in when I think about all the things that are around us that we could look at and just get man just get upset about and see graphs that show cases going up and civil unrest and violence and Things that should have been drugged to the surface years ago that are finally getting there and hopefully talked about and dealt with. When you see all of that, sometimes in the midst of all that, you're like, where's the hope? Where's the joy? Where is it? Only Jesus saves. That's it. And Jesus, when he gets before them and he's getting ready to launch into this, all this stuff, and he's about to ramp up. When I say he's about to ramp up, when we read, and if you read them, not like, man, this is the hundredth time I've read what he says about murder and about adultery and what he says about um, uh, turning the other cheek and all of that stuff. And you just read, yes, what Jesus says. When you think about the implications of what he says, you realize that he is calling for radical behavior. And before he launches into that, he says, the law is valid. I'm the one that's going to fulfill it, still teach it, but none of you can keep it, and I'm about to make it harder. And all of that is to lead us where pride is oftentimes the biggest obstacle to us seeing God move in our lives. To a place where we say, without you, I can't do anything, Jesus. That's true of salvation. But that's true for those of us that have been saved. 
It isn't the thing where he saves you and then goes, all right, now you go make it on your own. We still need him. Only Jesus saves. Would you pray with me today?